0: All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Have you guys ever read a book or listened to a piece of music and you had to listen to it more than once to understand the complexities of the piece, or maybe read more than once to understand the author's intent? Look, if you come into the office any day during the week, there's really no telling what kind of music you'll hear coming out of my office. Uh, There are days that it's classical and opera, and that's just the soundtrack from the television series Endeavor, which is the best uh, detective show since Get Smart. Um, Other days, it's uh, country-western music from Australia and New Zealand. With classics like, I don't sit down until the cooking's done. One of my favorites. But there are times, especially those times when I want to <clears throat> study, or I'm just more pensive in nature, I'll listen to something appropriate. And one of those is a composer named Eric Satie, and his piece is gymnopedy And it is so plain and so slow and so simple, but as you listen to it over and over, you discover the complexities and even its haunting nature and it's it's fascinating. We're about to embark upon a section of Romans where you may feel I need to read this more than once. In fact, I assure you, you will need to read it more than once, and we'll do that as we work through these verses. Let's read them together, and then we'll just kind of take a breath and see where we are. So we're in Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick up this morning with verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, we're not going to cover all of these verses this morning, but I wanted to give you the overall, the overall picture. Verse 12, Therefore. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'm going to let your brains catch up with your eyes here for a second, because you may have read that faster than you understood it. You ever feel like so far we've been in the baby pool of Romans, and we just jumped off into the deep end? So today, we begin this new section, chapter 5. The last 10 verses deal with mankind's union with Adam, on the one hand, which has led to death and condemnation, and with the believer's union with Christ, on the other hand. And this latter union leads to life and to righteousness. This section of Paul's letter is difficult. Some consider it, one of the most difficult sections of the Bible, I think I agree with them. I will tell you that when I asked the staff to look over this passage, one of them, I'll let you guess which one, got to verse 15 and just stopped reading and just said, what the heck, Paul? And that's kind of what you feel like when you read through this, is what, what are you what? what you, I, I followed you through justification, I think. I mean, there were some difficult areas, but I think I followed that. Now, what are you talking about? This is very difficult. Uh, I'm meeting with a friend of mine. We try to meet weekly, but it's really as our schedules allow. And what we do is we get together and we study major doctrines of scripture, which is why I don't have any friends. <laughs> Because that's what we do when we get together, is study major doctrines of Scripture. And the last one that we looked at was the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. He is totally incomprehensible. You cannot completely and comprehensively understand all that there is to know about God. You cannot take the infinite, which is God, and put it into the finite, which is the space between here. And as we know, some of us are more finite than others, but you can take the least finite person you think in the room, the brightest mind, the smartest person. You may think that because of what they do for a living. It's very difficult. They must be very smart. Or maybe because of their education. They have many, many degrees, and so they've obviously been to college and university, so they must be less finite in their thinking than I am. Or perhaps it's just because you heard them in Sunday school with uh, probing questions or insightful comments, and it led you to believe that they are very bright. Or of course, it could be because you hear them preach week in and week out, Never mind. It doesn't really matter. Um, You still cannot fit the infinite into the finite. God is incomprehensible. His knowledge is not comprehensive. It's apprehensive. We are to take hold of it as we can as we mature in Christ. We take hold of more and more knowledge of God. In fact, you could take hold of all of the knowledge of God that exists in the Bible. You could be an expert on God. You could know everything that is written about his character and his nature and his behavior in the Bible, and your knowledge would not be comprehensive. God has not chosen to reveal everything about himself. So our knowledge is incomplete. I think as we look at this whole topic of our union with Christ, our knowledge will be incomplete. But I believe it is very important. The Scottish pastor and theologian James Stewart called union with Christ the heart of Paul's religion. How can it be the heart of Paul's religion and we don't even know what it means? Adding that this, more than any other conception, more than justification, more than sanctification, even more than reconciliation, is the key Which unlocks the secrets of his soul. Pretty strong for something we know so little about. John Murray went even further and said union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Yet, strangely, this is a widely neglected theme. Arthur Pink says this this quote will be on the screen the subject of spiritual union is the most important the most profound and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures and yet sad to say there is hardly any which is now more generally neglected the very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing christian circles And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of this precious truth. Probably its very profundity is the reason why it is so largely ignored. So many preachers avoid subjects like this. Our elders here believe that it's not wise to neglect anything that God has seen fit to reveal to us, particularly something as important as this. In fact, you can't read through Romans without running into it, so we're going to cover it. But this morning, I want to give you a very high-altitude view of the concept, just a summary of what it is, sort of. So where are we in the letter? How does this fit into the context of what Paul is saying? You have to remember, beginning in chapter 5, Paul is carrying forward the argument that he began earlier, showing that this justification that we have through Jesus Christ is a sure thing, it is certain, and it will inevitably carry us through to glorification at the end of our life. So thus far, Paul's arguments have been based on the nature of our justification. We've studied things like this. One of the ways we can be assured of our salvation is we know that God has made peace with us through the work of his son. We can be sure of our salvation because we have been given a new relationship with Christ now, and we stand in that relationship. We can also be sure of our salvation because of the sure and certain hope that we shall surely see God. Fourth goes to our ability to endure sufferings as security of our salvation. We can be sure of our salvation because God sent his son to die for us, not when we were pure and holy, but when we were his enemies. And then last week, we learned that we can be assured of our salvation because if God has justified us, which was the greater thing through the death of his son on the cross, demands more of God than glorification, surely he will do the lesser thing and carry us through to glorification. So again, in Romans 5, the first 11 verses As Paul argues for the certainty and finality of salvation, it is from the nature of our justification by faith. He brings out certain elements of it each week, or each verse, we took took it each week. But now, Paul is telling us that justification wasn't the only thing involved. It's immensely important, of course, But in addition to justification, you could say in conjunction with it, we were united to Christ. And theologians call this the mystical union. We were united to Christ. And even though it's been revealed to us in scripture, we do not fully understand it. I would say you could even anticipate or say that Paul anticipated this theme back in verse 10. Here's what he says there. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. But in the Greek text, those last three words are not by his life, which is what the English Standard Version says, or through his life, which is what the New International Version says, But the Greek text says, in his life. So much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in his life. Is this important? Well, yes, I think it is. Here's why. When we say through his life or by his life, those words mean either or both of two things. One, it could mean that we are saved through Christ. That is, by his work on the cross. Or it could mean that we are saved through faith in that work on the cross. And of course, both of those statements are true. But that's not the idea here at the end of verse 10. The first part of 10 does say that, exactly. But the second part goes beyond it, and it makes a contrast. Contrast. The argument is if God has saved us through the death of Christ through faith in his atonement he will certainly save us by our being in his life. There's that union. And at this point in the letter verse 10 we don't even know what that means. Which is why verses 12 through 21 explain it. So All I'm saying here is that Paul is here developing what he introduced back in verse 10. D. Martin L. Jones says that that word in, back in verse 10, means in the sphere of, or in the realm of, or in connection with, the life of Christ. Now, as we continue in Romans, we're gonna see Paul unfold a sequences of deliverances, deliverance from sin, from death, and from the law, each of which result in spiritual victory. What makes that possible is our union with Christ. So this idea is very difficult, again, and reading these verses is particularly mind-stretching. So let's probe it a little deeper before we jump into these verses next week there are two important points to keep in mind. First, the union of the believer with Christ is one of three great unions in Scripture which are difficult to understand. The first is the union of the persons of the Godhead in the Trinity. Christians, as well as Jews, speak of one God. Yet on the basis of the revelation in scripture, the revelation about God, we who are Christians say that we also believe that this one God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can't completely understand how that works. In fact, I've challenged some of you to come up with an illustration of the Trinity that doesn't fall into a heresy that the church has already attacked. And you cannot do it. Don't talk to me about the egg or about ice and steam and water. Don't, uh-uh. Don't talk to me about being a father and an uncle and a brother all at the same time. All of those fall into the category of one or another heresies that the church has faced. It's difficult to understand but the Bible teaches it, and so we believe it. The second mystical union is that of the two natures of Christ in one person. When Jesus came to earth, he's one person. He doesn't have multiple personalities. Nevertheless, he is both God and man. He possesses two natures. If you wanna know The definition of that, I'll direct you to the Council of Chalcedon, which was A.D. 451. This ought to clear things up for you. Jesus is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence not parted or divided into persons, but one and the same God. If you understand that, you're a a much better person than I am. That needs to be parsed a phrase at a time to see what in the world they're saying. But even though I don't fully understand it, I believe it the two natures of Jesus, because that's what Scripture teaches. So we have a similar situation here in the union of believers with Christ. We're probably never going to know this fully, comprehensively. But it is important, and therefore we should hold on to it and try to gain understanding. Remember, I said there were two important points. Well, here's the second one. The union of the believer with Christ is not a concept that was invented by Paul, but rather it was first taught by Jesus and then built upon by Paul. Now, I will admit to you, Jesus never used the words mystical union that we know of, but he taught in other ways by analogies, for example. These are frequent in scripture, so let's look at a couple of examples. First, we have the vine and the branches. Now remember, we're talking about being united with Christ somehow, some mysterious way. So the first example it gives is the vine and the branches. And we go to John 15 to see that. Uh, this is one of Jesus' final discourses before his arrest. John 15:1 I am the vine I'm the true vine down to verse 4 Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me I'm the vine you're the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing so you see the references to some, this abiding in Christ is very similar to the idea of our union with Christ. We can't do anything apart from him. The emphasis in this passage is upon the power of Christ nourishing and working itself out through disciples. Paul touches on this in Romans 11. He talks about Jewish branches being cut away Broken off an olive tree, so that Gentile branches might for a time be grafted in. When we talk of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, we have this idea in mind as well. So first we have the vine, and the branches. Second, we have the Lord's Supper. On that same evening, when Jesus described himself as the vine, He gave instructions for observing the Lord's Supper and he said stuff like this. This is my body and this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So somehow in this, there is some symbolic participation in the life of Christ. Jesus taught in other places that he was the bread of life. John chapter six, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You remember the woman at the well in Samaria? John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, but it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, the emphasis here is not only just empowering, but permanence. You will never thirst again. You will never hunger again. This union with Christ will be eternally satisfying. The third analogy is a foundation and the structure built upon it. Jesus initiated this image when he spoke of himself as the solid foundation in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Connected to the foundation, the rock, united there. Paul used this a lot. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, that we are God's building. In Ephesians 2, he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is what we are built upon. In the next verse, that building becomes a temple. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So in whom, at the beginning of that verse, in whom the whole structure being joined together refers back to Jesus in the previous verse. It's only because we are in Christ that this is possible. You want to get even more mystical and less understanding? That verse also teaches that not only are we joined to Christ, but we're joined to one another at the same time. something to think about. Fourth, the head and members of the body. This is one of Paul's favorites, Ephesians 1. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ when each uh, part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in these verses, the emphasis is on really two things, growth and the proper functioning of the church and the fact that each Christian is needed for that functioning. The final example here is that of marriage. Marriage. between a man and a woman who are joined to form one flesh one family this image is in the old testament the book of hosea where god is portrayed as the faithful husband who is deserted by israel the unfaithful wife jesus picked up on the theme by speaking of a marriage supper to which all who have faith are invited in matthew 22 However, it is really Paul who develops this theme in Ephesians, mixing it with the image of Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands. I'm sorry, I get hung up on that one. It's one of my favorites. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives Loves himself. And then we skip down to verse 32. And it says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the emphasis in this example is upon a love bonding. This is, in fact, the true marriage made in heaven. Not just for this life, but for eternity. Now, in upcoming sermons, we're going to compare this doctrine of our union with Christ with our union with Adam. We'll look at that in detail. But I want to close here this morning by trying to put our union in in Christ in the widest possible setting, remembering that Paul here is writing to assure us of our security and our salvation. So, I want to look both backwards and forward at this idea of salvation. And I'm quoting here a lot from John Murray, who wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And in that book, there is a chapter called Union with Christ. So, when you think of salvation, how far back can you go? How far back do you imagine there is an element of salvation? Well, the furthest back you can go regarding salvation is the concept of election. And election upsets a lot of people, but it's in the Bible. You can look it up. The only thing we can argue with is the basis for that election, if you want to. Here's what Murray says the fountain of salvation itself in the eternal election of the Father is in Christ. Our election by God the Father is in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Father, elected, he chose from all eternity but he did so in Christ. We're not able to understand all that is involved. It hurts my head to think about how my union with Christ could be considered in my election before I was ever born. The fact is plain there was no election of the Father in eternity apart from Christ. And that means that those who will be saved were not even contemplating by the, contemplated by the Father in the ultimate counsel of his predestinating love apart from union with Christ. They were chosen in Christ. So that's pretty far back to go, to still be in Christ. As far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its very fountain, we find union with Christ. It is not something tacked on. It is there from the outset. Let's move on to redemption it's also because the people of God were in Christ when he gave his life a ransom and redeemed them by his blood that they've been secured. They are represented as united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation in heaven. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Hence, we can never really think of redemption wrought by Christ once and for all, apart from his union with his people which was affected from the very election of the Father in Christ from eternity past. So let's move on. Really the first thing that happens to us as people in salvation is regeneration. It is a new creation. Our dead soul is replaced with a live one and it is in Christ That the people of God are created anew. Ephesians two ten, we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Shouldn't surprise us that the beginning of salvation, as far as actual possession of it goes, should be in the union with Christ. We know our its origin at its start in the election of the Father in Christ. The redemption was accomplished in Christ. So you, you wouldn't assume that all of that would be suspended when the people of God become actual partakers of this redemption. Finally, glorification. It is in Christ. That the people of God will be resurrected and glorified. 1 Corinthians 15:22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You see the great scope of salvation from the election of God in eternity past to the glorification of the sons of God in eternity future is based on the union of the believer with Christ. That's why it is so important that we're going to study it thoroughly. Assurance of salvation, security in Christ. That's what we're dealing with in these middle chapters of Romans While there are many things in there meant to encourage us, perhaps the greatest is that we are in Christ. So I guess the question you have to ask is, am I really in him? Am I a Christian? And so how do you know? Well, you can't look backwards into eternity past to pry into God's hidden counsels to find out. And you can't look into eternity future to see yourself as one who has been glorified. So all you have is the present. But if you probe the present, you can know. You remember we used that marriage illustration? You can ask yourself, does that illustration apply to me? Do you remember when you got married, if you're married? Anybody here accidentally get married? You didn't know about it? Brother or sister, if you woke up married and know nothing about it, you certainly and most definitely have a drinking problem. (laughs) Marriage is not accidental. It's intentional. Many people remember their vows. Many better people than me remember their vows. When we talk about our relationship with Christ, do you remember those vows? Have you vowed to take Jesus to be your loving and faithful savior in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow and in sickness and health for this life and for the life to come? God pronounces that marriage. And in this case, what God has joined us together, no one will ever put us under. I'm going to ask our musicians and our servers to come to the front as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Here at Fairway, we rarely worship by observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper as instructed by Jesus. At our church, if you're not a member here, you're still welcome to participate with us, provided... You have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've been baptized by immersion, and you're remembering good standing of a church. If that's the case, you can join us this morning. Otherwise, we would ask that you respectfully um, abstain. Before taking it, the Bible teaches that we should examine ourselves, examine our heart, for sin that needs to be confessed. And also take time to examine, think about, (coughs) contemplate the elements before us, the body broken for you and the blood spilled for you. So I'm gonna ask our men to come and prepare the elements for service. At this church, we do not take the elements to you. We will dismiss you an aisle at a time To come up, take your elements and return to your seat, and then we will take them together. If you are unable to come up, then all we ask is that you kind of raise your hand. We have a gentleman who will bring them to you. Okay, let's begin the distribution. Mm -hmm. You will please pray for
1: the bread. Jesus, over and over again, we thank you for your broken body for us. Your sacrifice, your willingness, your obedience. You're not seeing yourself as having equal standing with the Father, coming, enduring shame and persecution. We thank you for your broken body as we remember you this morning. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen.
0: 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. David, if you would pray for the cup, please.
1: Father. Father. We come before you at the cross where Christ died and his blood flowed to cover our sin. And as was preached this morning, that we might be united, reconciled, joined together with you. That we may be brought near when we were far. I pray that you would Pierce our hearts as we remember the sacrifice that Christ made his death his suffering and by his blood we are saved by his blood we are washed by his blood we are clean and welcome into relationship and reconciliation with you I pray that our lives would be one of worship in response to that love that our spirit, our soul, and our body would be blameless before you and free from blemish at Christ's coming. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: The passage continues in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Back in Matthew 26, where this is recorded, it says that they, they sang a hymn and left. So that's what we'll do this morning. Josh, if you'll lead us, please.